As a young journalist, filing freelance reports from around the world for the BBC, while holding down a day job on business magazines about Eastern Europe, I'd already seen the implosion of the old Soviet Union up close. While in Moscow and St. Petersburg in 1992, I'd watch spellbound the everyday effect on people's lives as the system, the rule of law, the economy, the whole Soviet dream went into meltdown, seemingly almost overnight. Suddenly, the wide classical prospects of St. Petersburg became dark and dangerous places. Office workers and factory hands began stripping light bulbs, chairs, fittings, ornaments, and cables from their workplaces and heading out into the squares to sell them alongside the householders hawking their belongings. I witnessed one waiter stealing his own restaurant's cutlery while serving guests. But if it looked like chaos, there were also tantalizing hints of new, more organized forces at work. The mafia groups were already all-powerful. A well-intended clampdown on alcohol by President Gorbachev between 1985 and 1987, culminating in partial prohibition, had both sunk the state coffers in a country where alcohol is often more a career than a pastime, and allowed a countrywide black market for smuggled, stolen, and homemade vodka, wine, and other booze to take root and grow out of control. Now, even amid the masses of patched-up vans and backfiring ladas, one could see here and there conspicuously shiny Japanese-made jeeps with tinted glass, guarded or ridden shotgun by hulking, shaven-head ex-military types. The Chechen Mafia took over Moscow's exclusive 3,200-room foreigners-only Hotel Rossiya next to St. Basil's Cathedral, and I watched as they shook down guests and directed their army of bruised, overcoat-clad prostitutes to work the filthy lifts and hammer-on guest rooms, attempting to sell sex, heroin, and amphetamines they called cocaine. Meanwhile, on Moscow's lively Arbat Street, bony AWOL soldiers sold off liberated army gear, their uniforms, supplies, live bullets on the roll. Western defense analysts were already hurriedly trying to place and trace the last known locations of the billions of tons of explosives, bullets, nuclear and biochemical material, and military technology now lying loose and unguarded and very much for sale. A lifelong Russophile, I was horrified. But in a funny way, I was fascinated too. This dangerous, dirty place on the verge of anarchy, full of the dark anti-glamour of desperation and violence, was everything my middle-class home wasn't. And most of all, I was curious. What will these people do now? In a place this powerful and this unstable, what happens next? Back in London and struggling in journalism, I worked briefly in a dead-end job at a journal publisher, whose titles included a defense trade magazine and several Russian business titles. Though the publishers can't have known it and ran them in good faith, I couldn't help noticing how occasional ad pages seemed to function as discreet clearinghouses for any MiG-29 fighter planes or bits of other hardware that Russian, Kazakh, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Biznesmany, or impoverished state concern had acquired and wished to convert into currency. Taking copy of the we-are-your-ideal-partner-in-Russia-for-sell-top-military-plane variety dictated by a man who only ever referred to himself as the contact over a crackly phone line from a DACA in the Caucasus seemed to fit, somehow, with what I'd seen myself a year or so earlier. None of them ever paid for their ads. But with their DACAs and deals, these men were clearly at the top of the tree, the winners from the big shake-up. I couldn't help wondering about where that money was going, 
about who could possibly have a use for all these Soviet planes, and about who was going to fly them. Whatever happened to all those regular Joes down below? Then in 1998, I found myself in what was left of a rapidly disintegrating Yugoslavia. The war in Bosnia over, the NATO intervention in Kosovo imminent, on what I hoped would become a freelance piece for the Sunday Telegraph. And with the currency collapsing and the Serb mafia and regime cronies holding court in the hotels of Belgrade, I considered myself pretty well versed in Eastern European anarchy. I thought I'd seen it all before. What I hadn't prepared myself for was the first glimmering of an answer to the questions I'd been asking myself all along.